Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man who Grimace is a close personal friend of his. Here is the captain. Yeah. It's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Today in the garage, we are very excited to be featuring Zipper Ripper from the creative brewers over at Hoof Hearted Brewing in beautiful Marengo, Ohio. Zipper Ripper is a double IPA brewed with Amish wildflower honey. We have recommended several of the great beers from Hoof over the years. They have been a local favorite here in Ohio. Zipper Ripper is 8.5% ABV garage grade 4 and a half bottle caps out of five. And let's give some thanks and praise to those that helped us fill up the old garage fridge this week. First up, a big cheers to Cindy M. in Chandler, Arizona. That big We Like Your Chip goes out to Victoria and parts unknown. And last but certainly not least, we have Kelly Howell in Conway, Arkansas. Everyone we mentioned, they went to our website and they clicked on the pint glass. And for that, we thank you. Yeah, B-W-E-R-R-U-N, Beer Run. Make sure you check out the website store this weekend because we'll be adding some more women cut tees. I know you're going to like them. So check those out at truecrimegarage.com. And Colonel, that's enough of the business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. Somewhere between sleep and consciousness, there is a whole other world. One that is confusing, blurry, and hypnotizing. It was in this world that all I could see, or at least make out at the time, was a sea of faces, many of them young. But it was an organized sea, not chaotic at all. The faces all seemed to be perfectly lined up in a grid. Row after row, column after column. Like one very large black and white page from a yearbook. I was lost somewhere between those two worlds of sleep and perfectly aware and alert. It was 1 a.m. and I was falling asleep. I had been reading for hours, and either the state I was in was due to the late hour, or the soothing rhythmic reading of each name, one by one, row after row, column after column. I was stuck, entrenched and entranced, and then I was out. When I came to, I was able to sort out the blurry details of the image that was the gateway to my slumber. It was page 84 of the October 26, 2008 edition of the Daily American Republic, a fine newspaper 
out of Poplar Bluff, Missouri. The page featured 83 faces, each the face of a missing person. Across the top of the page in large type were words of immediate concern, missing children, which were bookended by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children organization's logo and the number to call should you have seen or have any information about one of the missing people on the page, or frankly, anyone who is missing at all? 1-800-THE-LOST I know the name does not make it clear, but the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, or NICMEC for short, the organization assists in bringing home adults as well. In fact, and unfortunately, Many of the younger folks listed on this page and on the NICMEC website were children who went missing once upon a time and are now adult-aged missing people. 34 of the faces and names were once from the state of Missouri. One of them, the face and name of this week's featured case. Of the missing persons featured from Missouri. There are some names that you are sure to recognize. Names like that of Suzanne Streeter and Stacy McCall. Suzanne and Stacy are two of the Springfield Three. Three females who are still missing to this very day and believed to be the victims of an abduction. We covered the Springfield Three case back in April of 2017 in episodes 97 and 98. Also from Missouri, there's Branson Perry. Branson went missing in 2001. He was about 20 years old at the time. We covered Branson's case in April of 2021, episode 484. Then there was the picture of a little girl from Orlando, Florida. The name Kaylee Marie Anthony. Kaylee went missing in June of 2008. Remember, this page was printed up for an October 26, 2008 newspaper. Kaylee was still missing at this time. Her mother was charged with first-degree murder that same month. Kaylee's body was found in December of 2008. We covered that story in a four-part series, starting in April of 2017, with episode 101. But the focus for this week is one of the Missouri cases, a case still active today. It was the picture that was in the first of many rows of faces, the tenth face in the row, Heather Nicole Kalorn from St. Louis. Heather vanished under mysterious circumstances on a hot July night in 1999. This is the story of the search for Heather Kalorn, and this is True Crime Garage.
story starts off in July of 1999. The unfortunate victim in this story is 12-year-old Heather Kalorn. She was last seen on July 14, 1999. This was at 10 p.m. Now, most of the websites out there will typically list Heather as missing since July 15th, the next day. Well, that is because what police rightfully have focused in on is a six-hour window. The six-hour window that we will be talking about today is from 10 p.m. on the 14th to 4 a.m. on the 15th. It appears that police have narrowed down the whatever happened to Heather as happening in this window of time. Heather was 12 the night that she disappeared. She was spending the night in an apartment complex in Richmond Heights, Missouri. This is a neighborhood in the greater St. Louis area. What has been told to police is that Heather was to be babysitting a two-month-old baby girl overnight and on that night. The baby was the daughter of 23-year-old Dana Madden and 34-year-old Christopher Herbert. These two were both friends with Christine Kalorn. Christine is Heather's mother. We will get into that relationship some more as we go through everything. And before we get into the details of the night in question, let's discuss what we know about Heather leading up to the disappearance. So Heather was only 12 years old. She didn't live at this apartment complex. She lived with her mother and brother on Vermont Avenue. This is in the greater St. Louis area as well. Heather's mother, Christine, is a single mother of two. Heather has an older brother named Matthew. One of Heather's favorite things was the nearby Six Flags amusement park, to which Heather had a season pass. Heather was described as mature for her age. I believe someone said it was like she was 12 going on 30. Heather was excited about her babysitting gig, and she was looking forward to spending the summer earning some money. A lot of kids, you know, going into their teenage years want to earn a little cash so they can spend it you know maybe it's at this amusement park but i do think it's kind of a tall task for a 12 year old to be watching a two-month-old overnight i agree captain i remember we all like to get those summer jobs and start earning a little bit of money it sounds like heather was looking forward to saving up some money and there's a few different versions of what she was saving this money for some have said that this would be for christmas gifts that year and others had said that it could be for personal items or items of a more personal nature or items for her own entertainment. Heather was social. We know this from school and her six flags pass. She would visit with friends and hang out with them at the amusement park, but nothing was mentioned about boys or her being more concerned about spending time with friends that summer rather than going off and having this job and making some money. It appears, Captain, that the summer was going to be spent primarily with this babysitting gig and using her Six Flags pass. So it's summertime. We have a 12-year-old watching a two-month-old overnight. And Heather was just, I believe, 4'10", just under 100 pounds. So pretty small. She was just out of the sixth grade. But a little bad news here, unfortunately, Heather was due to return to sixth grade after the summertime. This was not about behavior or grades. Unfortunately, it was due to absences. 
During the course of her sixth grade year, Heather got sick and she began missing a lot of school days. In February of 1999, she was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. This meant regular required daily insulin injections. By the summer of 99, Heather had learned to manage her diabetes, this with some reminders and supervision from her mother, Christine. Before we get into the more ominous parts of our story, there was a detail here that I found to be rather charming. If you look up Heather on the web, often what will come up is a funny picture of Heather with no eyebrows. So this picture was taken after a day when she decided she was going to take on some of her own beauty regimen by plucking eyebrows. And uh, this turned into having to shave them off. I'm sure that many of us can remember times when we attempted our own haircut when we were young and it didn't turn out so well. Well, I also believe that she chopped up her bangs pretty bad as well during this same time period leading up to her disappearance. And there's a couple different reports out there and I I'm, I'm uncertain as to why this would be here, captain. So it states that she would have been spending a week with the couple and their new daughter. And there's at least one source that had said that the intention was for her to stay two weeks with the couple and their daughter. So she's going to be hanging out with the couple and watching the kid while they're there, assisting with the kid while they're there, and also watching the baby when they are both not able to be there. As far as work goes, we do know that Dana Madden, 23-year-old, she had a job at a gas station, and oftentimes she would work the night shift. She would work the third trick. Christopher Herbert, his work status is a little more foggy, uh, and that will become obvious for obvious reasons as we go through the timeline and the events that took place after Heather went missing. Yeah, again, I will repeat it. I just think a 12-year-old watching a two-month-old is irresponsible, especially to have somebody watching a child where they don't have any means of transportation themselves. Right, and I think it's irresponsible on several levels. So I think that it was probably a bad idea for Heather's mother to allow this to take place. Mm -hmm. I also think it's a bad idea for the mother and father of the two-month-old to think that a 12-year-old would be capable of handling such a tall task. But that's neither here nor there. None of that can be changed now. We should state here that Heather was in constant contact with her mother, this for a multitude of reasons, but primarily Christine was checking in with her daughter, Heather, to monitor the diabetes situation and to constantly remind her daughter, hey, you got to be checking everything and you got to be taking your medication as scheduled. That's the most important thing here as far as Christine was concerned. And then depending on what route you look at from Home to home, we're talking about a 15, 20-minute drive for mother to get to daughter should Heather need something. The interesting part here, too, Captain, like one thing I, I couldn't wrap my head around early on in looking at this case was, like you said, 
not just why would we have a 12-year-old watching a two-month-old, but why would my 12-year-old be staying with another couple? And I think I felt a little better about this the more I kind of dived into the, the relationship there. So Christine was to be good friends with Dana Madden, the mother, at the, the apartment where she'll be watching the two-year-old. And then Christopher Herbert, who is older than Dana. Christopher Herbert's 34. Dana Madden's 23. The father of the two-month-old, he has known Christine, Heather's mother, and Heather for a good deal of time. So at one point, Christopher and Heather's mother had an on-and-off-again relationship. And Christopher would stay at Christine and Heather's house or apartment on occasion. So he was rather close to Heather before any of this took place as well. That doesn't make me feel any better about this situation. You're basically saying that her mom and, and this guy were were in a relationship. Uh, yes, at one time they were in a relationship. Yeah. I'm What I'm getting at, though, Captain, is I was concerned going into this situation where we may have a male living in the apartment with a 12-year-old girl being inserted into a situation with a man that she does not know. Right. They have a lengthy history, both the male and the female, Christopher and Dana. So the police have really narrowed down this timeline to about a six-hour window. So let's go over the night in question. Yes, and I think one thing that we should point out here, regardless of if, if it was supposed to be a one-week stint or a two-week period that she would be assisting the the new parents, that this was not night one. You know, this was not the first night that she was to be there. And the, the, the other thing that, that's unsettling here as well, you have to wonder with Dana working overnight, how many of these evenings, how many of these babysitting shifts for Heather were to be overnight, her alone with a two-month-old overnight in this apartment complex? And not going to lie, it was pretty easy and pretty quick to figure out that this apartment complex, not the best area, not, not the kind of area that I'm going to move into and raise a two-month-old. So... We have Christopher Herbert and Dana Madden, their newborn baby, living at 1646 Yale Avenue. And the way that this story works is that 23-year-old Dana Madden, she says that she goes to work her overnight shift. She's going to be showing up for her shift, leaving the apartment about 10 p.m. that night with the intention of returning after her shift is done at 7 a.m. the following morning. Christopher Herbert, Heather Kalorn, and the two-month daughter are all at the apartment when Dana Madden leaves. Let's fast forward to around 4 a.m. or after 4 a.m. Sometime in the 4 a.m. hour, Christopher Herbert comes home. He said he left the apartment at 10.30 p.m. that night. When he arrives the following morning, it's still dark out, of course, in that 4 a.m. hour, he says that even through the door, before he even opens up his front door, he could hear his baby inside crying. Right. He thought that when he opened up the door, he would see Heather trying to 
console the, the little girl or taking care of the little girl, trying to figure out why she is crying and how we could stop that. Unfortunately, Christopher says that when he went into the apartment, he does not find Heather. He only finds his crying little two-month-old daughter. Where, but where does Christopher say he went? Let's save that for when the police arrive here, Captain, because what we have here is his next move is going to be calling his girlfriend, Dana Madden, at work. He calls her, and there's some discrepancy on how lengthy this conversation was. There's some discrepancy on how this phone call played out. Some say he calls in, talks to Dana briefly. Dana gets off the phone, calls the police, reports Heather missing. The other version of that story is that he called Dana. They end up in an argument on the phone. And then after the argument, Dana hangs up, calls police. To me, I don't think it really matters exactly what happened on that phone call as far as the discrepancies in those two stories. I couldn't imagine there not being an argument well, on that phone a, call. It's an intense situation, so somebody passing by and hearing this conversation could mistake panic, worry, and uh, maybe a little frustration with each other. That you know, that doesn't mean that they were arguing. And the two likely reported it differently to police, right? Right. You, you, you're talking to Dana. You're talking to Christopher. You're talking to them separately. Dana's probably saying, "Yeah, I gave him, I gave him the business. I gave him the what for when he called me. I was panicking. This is my friend's daughter." And Christopher, maybe he saw it a different way. Maybe he's he's looking for Heather. He's concerned. He's in a panic state. Doesn't feel like it was necessarily an argument. Just Two people, as you said, excited, panicked, uh, maybe raised voices because of the situation with no intent of arguing or debating who's to blame here. Right. Police are on the scene a little after 5 a.m. They're at the apartment and they are searching the apartment complex. They are searching the apartment, the surrounding areas, looking for Heather. Now, you had asked about where did Christopher Herbert say that he was? Well, he told police that he left the apartment at 1030 that night and he left the apartment to take a friend home. Well, that seems a little strange. It shouldn't take five and a half hours to take a friend home. And police were onto that very quickly. They questioned Christopher Herbert. Why would you tell us? You were gone a whole five and a half hours. He didn't have a solid answer for that. What he did have was a, a second story. I was at a park near the riverbank, uh -huh. and a friend and I went there to party together. And when I came home, Heather was gone. So you go to a park after 10 p.m. Chances are if that's a state park... <laughs> It's not open after a certain time period. I don't trust any of these people that they change their story immediately. Well, of course. Yeah. And when two-story two, two Chris. Well, <laughs> it's going to turn into more like four-story Chris before we get done with, with our story. Um, so they speak with Christopher, and immediately he changes his story. As said, he's out partying in a park with one of his buddies, and when he returns, Heather is not there. Now, 
they start going around and they are looking through uh, the apartment complex. They're knocking on doors. And one of the doors that they knock on is a man by the name of Mike Mason. Mike Mason is a friend of Christopher Herbert's. They know each other well. And in fact, Mike Mason knows Heather Kalorn as well, because he is often over at Herbert's apartment. Very quickly in the search for Heather, what they discover, Captain, is drug paraphernalia in the apartment complex itself. In fact, where they find it is in a garage, a detached garage that is shared by these two men, Christopher Herbert and Mike Mason. What's unclear here, Captain, is who all had access to this garage, right? We know that these two guys who lived in separate dwellings both had access to this garage. Both, it's reported, had shared the garage, but were they sharing the garage with anybody else? That is a good question. But they find paraphernalia in this garage area, and later, after some some hardcore work, they determined that they're probably cooking meth amphetamines in this garage. We are back to the windows to the walls. Cheers, everybody. Tall cans in the air, Captain. Before we jump back into the story, we'd like to tell our listeners about a true crime podcast that as a fan of True Crime Garage, I think you will really enjoy it. We've talked about it before. It's called Criminology. Criminology debuted in 2017, and so far, host Mike Ferguson and Mike Morford have published over 250 episodes that are available to binge right now. They've covered everything from shocking murder cases to perplexing missing persons cases. Some of the cases they cover are well-known, like that of the Boston Strangler, the Delphi Murders, or Son of Sam. Other cases are truly bizarre ones you may not have heard of, like the Puckatello Babysitter Murders and the Amana Hatchet Murders, or the puzzling missing persons case of Keith Mann. Mike and Mike dive into both solved and unsolved cases and tackle not only new cases that are currently making headlines, but long forgotten cases as well. And you can even catch full seasons focusing on the Zodiac Killer, the Golden State Killer, and Ted Bundy. So check out the Criminology podcast for yourself. Criminology is available everywhere you listen to podcasts and new episodes drop every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology right now so you don't miss a single episode. We have had Mike on as a guest in the past to help us talk about the Zodiac Killer. So check out their podcast. Now, the night in question here, Captain, you can see already how murky and how foggy this story is going to be for the investigators. They're really trying to hone in on what could have happened to this missing girl. Where could she be? Where can we locate her? How can we bring her home safe? And as you pointed out, and as I agreed, I don't think, we don't think she was already placed in the best of situations. And now we're dealing with the, the worst of the worst. 
a true nightmare. Well, no, and the thing too is if 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 her mother actually knew these individuals, like you said, this thirty four year old man leaves. He, he he was capable of staying at home, but he leaves to take his friend home. Again, we have no mention of that friend initially being at the house when uh, when the wife leaves for work. He's gone for five hours, and when they start searching the premises, they find evidence that they're cooking methamphetamines. So if you knew these individuals, you probably knew what they were involved in. That's another reason not to have your daughter watching their two-month-old. Exactly. And here's the thing here, too, Captain. And I know that police have sorted some of this mess out. I know that they have their suspects in this case. But the timeline is unclear because of what we pointed out before the break. You said old two-story Christopher. Well, I said four-story Christopher. The whole stories here are going to create a bunch of problems for our timeline that we are going to try to sort out. That timeline should lead us to who is most likely to have actually seen Heather last. So what we do have here, Captain, one box that we can check is that 10 p.m. box. So the 10 p.m. that night, Dana Madden says that she leaves to go to her overnight shift. She intends to work the shift. They follow up on that. Law enforcement follows up on that. They confirm 100% Dana Madden was at work that night, arrived on time, and she was still there when the, when the phone call came in from Christopher that Heather was missing. What's unclear, and I know you were kind of dancing around this just a second ago, the first story that Christopher supplies to the police is that he drove a friend home. Well, who was that friend, and was he at the apartment at the time that Dana left the apartment? Yeah, or was it a situation where the friend calls and I'm, I'm at work, can, can you pick me up and take me home? Christopher's story has always been that he left the apartment at 1030. What's tricky here is we know this from the information that came out from law enforcement. The next morning after Heather is reported missing, when they are out knocking on doors, looking for Heather, hoping to find her in somebody's apartment. One of the people they talk to is this Mike Mason, who is friends with Christopher, friends with Dana. He says he knows Heather, doesn't know where she is, didn't see her that night, according to his statements. The police then ask Mike Mason if he could drive to Dana's place of work at the gas station in nearby St. Louis, pick her up and return her to the apartment complex. So what that implies is that maybe she did not drive herself to work that night. So is it possible that the husband leaves with the friend and leaves with his wife to drop her off and then drop him off? It's See, that's what's difficult to sort out because Christopher's story has always been, and, and one thing we should say, in his defense, he does give different stories, but in all of his stories, he's leaving the apartment at 1030 and returning to the apartment a little after four. That part always stays the same in his stories. So you're right. Does Christopher have to drive Dana to work? And we know that this is only, it's only about a 10 minute drive. So he could in theory return to the apartment, then 
his buddy comes over or he meets up with the buddy and be there for a few minutes and decide to leave at 1030 and, and return his friend. What is not likely is that he returned his friend to the friend's home. It's probably more likely that his friend and Christopher get in the same vehicle at 1030. They go off to the park and now they're drinking and getting high together. Well, it's all fishy and it's all suspect. And like I said, I mean, you're, you're the mother of this 12 year old daughter. You're sending her over there to a babysit a two month old. And it's like, yeah, you've been friends with these individuals for a while, but then you, you probably know that they have some drug use in their history or their, or their currently drug users. And now you have this situation where like, like you said, you we're finding evidence that they're cooking meth in a, in a garage in these apartments. It's yeah. It would be very difficult for us to sit here and try to sort out what, uh, her mother, Christine knew about these two and what she didn't know. What we do know is that Heather was supposed to be there. And, and what we have to sort out is Christopher Herbert's versions of his story. So, Version one and two are different in the sense that he goes off to return his friend home. Version two, he and his friend are at the park drinking and getting high together. And then he returns at 4 a.m. Again, the thing that, that, that always stays true in those two stories or, or remains the same, I shouldn't say stays true, remains the same in those two stories is that he left at 1030 and returned a little after 4 a.m. In version three, he left at 1030, returned at 4 a.m., so that stays the same. He's at the park, same park, near the riverbank, near the river, and they are, he and his friend are making meth there. Story four gets even even more out there. Well, surprise, surprise. What's interesting to me is a couple things here. Police seem to all agree that the 10 p.m. statement from Dana Madden, she went to work, Heather was alive and fine, that's the last time I saw her. It seems like police have reason to believe that that is accurate. Right. That they have evidence to back up that that part of this story is a truth. So whatever happened, we now need to be concerned starting at 10.01 p.m., the night before up until Christopher calls Dana at her work the following morning, which is in the four o'clock hour. Well, in this case, we have a good report coming from a newspaper article on what the police were seeing as they arrived to check out and figure out what's going on and where is this missing girl. Right. So for a little clarity here, July 15th would have been a Thursday that week in 1999. This report comes from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, and they're reporting this on Saturday, July 17th. They're getting their information from the police as they worked the investigation on that Thursday. They're giving information to the newspaper the Friday morning. So the article is by Valerie Shrimp, and she states as follows. Police said that they suspect foul play in the disappearance of 12-year-old Heather Kalorn, who was last seen early Thursday morning in a Richmond Heights apartment. About 2 a.m. Thursday, a neighbor, so we have a, a potential eyewitness here, according to this report. 
It says at about 2 a.m. that Thursday, a neighbor taking out his dog says that he saw a man carrying a child who would have been about Heather's age out of the apartment. When they say the apartment, they mean Christopher and Dana's apartment. Right. This witness or potential eyewitness says the child's upper body was wrapped in a comforter. She was not wearing shoes and appeared to be sleeping. Investigators said the neighbor's report plus other evidence led them to suspect foul play. Quote, it supports our belief that she didn't leave on her own. This from Lieutenant Robert Lowry Jr. of the St. Louis area major case squad. Police described this comforter as an off-white with faded flowers quilted on one side and flat cotton on the other side. Authorities said they were concentrating their investigation on people who knew Heather. And then this is going to add to the thought of foul play. Police say that they found blood inside the apartment. Oh, God. But test had yet to determine if the blood belonged to the missing girl, Heather. Blood was found outside of the apartment. Now, this turned out to be blood that was from a neighbor who had been bitten by a dog recently. Police said some of the belongings in the apartment were out of place after the girl was reported missing, but authorities were not releasing a whole lot of details. They go on to tell the public that Heather is a diabetic who needs two shots of insulin a day. Without them, she would become dehydrated and slip into a diabetic coma. Well, this is where it becomes tricky because because of her new it's a new situation for her as far as being diabetic and having to test. And again, she's young, she's 12 years old. This is a again, if 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 my daughter just found out she was diabetic and we needed to make sure that she had insulin and make sure that we test multiple times a day, I want her around me as much as possible. I'd want her to be staying at home as much as possible until we get the situation under control because there could be an accident. There could be something, uh, this guy leaves for a little bit and, and she goes into some, a, a coma state and freaks out. Mm-hmm. And instead of calling the cops because he's, either high on drugs or involved with drug making and probably drug selling, he's he's less likely to call 911. Right. And the thing here too, Captain, is that may be what the argument would have been about had there been one on the call from Christopher to Dana Madden. He may have been telling her, don't, no, don't call the police. I got some stuff around here I need to clean up and hide. I got some things we got to we got to sort out before we can have the law knocking on the door. And the this article gives a little more detail saying that Dana Madden and Christopher Herbert had lived in that apartment for about a year uh prior to this disappearance. Their daughter is 2 months old as we said earlier, and this report states that Heather had been staying with them since Saturday. Uh, to help watch the baby. And as we said, the the time in question is Thursday morning. So she's been there a couple of nights. 
leading up to the night that she goes missing. They do state openly in this article that Christopher Herbert has made conflicting statements to police, but he is not considered a suspect at this time. And I hate when they say that. Just say everybody is a suspect at this time. We have a missing 12-year-old girl. But the neighbor, if, if you get a good enough look where you can identify this comforter, wouldn't you be able to identify your neighbor? Because he was neighbors with Christopher. Wouldn't he be able to say, and it was Christopher that was carrying this child out? So th- that's where the problem falls here. So we have the neighbor who says, I saw a man carrying a child. The child's wrapped in a comforter, no shoes on, and appeared to be sleeping. They have a description of the comforter. This is not coming from the, the neighbor, the and I keep saying potential eyewitness, and you'll understand very quickly why. Because he was high on methamphetamines. The The description of the comforter is coming from Dana Madden and Christopher Herbert, the, the two that, that own the comforter, that, that live and reside in the apartment. So when, when police search the apartment, basically there's two things missing from the apartment. Heather and this comforter. Right. Her shoes are still there. More importantly, her medicine that she requires, according to this article, twice a day to survive is there. That's the scary thing for mom when she first hears about her daughter missing, amongst other things. My daughter's missing. Oh, and she's she's without her medicine that she's required to take, that she needs. So she becomes an endangered missing Very quickly, yes. And then on top of that, as we said, police are openly stating to the public on Saturday, or I'm sorry, on Friday, this article comes out on Saturday, but on Friday morning, so they're stating, we suspect foul play. We have evidence of foul play. The eyewitness, the potential eyewitness, unfortunately could not describe the male other than tall and white, I believe was the very basic description that was given right this man who was walking his dog at 2 a.m it's dark it's what what's really kind of intriguing too here captain about this situation is this is not one of those large apartment complexes so many times when we're covering murder cases or missing persons case and we're talking about apartment complexes we're talking about large ones where you may have 150 units or 60 units and you you could have 100 people or, or 200 people living in, in a confined area, this apartment complex only has a very few units. So we don't have a ton of people living here. This neighbor out walking his dog is legally blind without his required glasses. And of course he's not wearing his glasses at 2 AM when he took the dog out for a walk. Yeah. I believe the police's statement was he's blind in one eye and he can't see out of the other. The thing though is Note the time that he says. He says he's walking the dog at 2 a.m. And this is one of the parts of the story where, look, I have a hard time believing some of Christopher's stories, obviously. I have a hard time believing some of the statements that will come from Mike Mason. Right. And I'm sure everybody out there is also questioning Dana Madden. What does she know or what did she suspect? But part of the story that that I have a hard time not believing is this guy out walking his dog. 
even though he can't describe the, the child that he sees, even though he can't describe the man that's carrying the child, I kind of believe he probably saw somebody carrying a child roughly Heather's age outside of that apartment, carrying out of that apartment that night at 2 a.m. Absolutely. Absolutely. I believe he saw something and it's hard to buy Christopher's story because like you said, what does he not change the time he left and the time he returned? Well, why would that be important? Because if you know that we took the girl out of the house at 2 a.m., you need to make sure that your story lines up that you weren't there at 2 a.m. Right. He needs to make sure that he's not there at 2 a.m. So just because that part of the story never changes doesn't mean I believe anything coming from this piece of shit's mouth. At the time of the disappearance in this article, they are pointing out that Heather is 4 feet 10 inches tall, weighing 75 pounds. She has medium brown hair and hazel eyes. And police were asking anyone who knows of Heather's whereabouts or any of her acquaintances. So even if you don't know about her whereabouts, uh, please call the Richmond Heights police at 314-645-4413 because they're trying to sort out. They, they very quickly have a lot of reasons to believe that either the person that took Heather, the person responsible for her disappearance, knew her, that the two knew each other, or this person has a direct connection to that apartment, to that apartment unit. Join us back here in the garage tomorrow, same bat time, same bat channel. And until then, be good, be kind, and don't litter.